Hi, and welcome to Future Thinking from Stylus. I'm your New York-based host, Amelia Miranda-Williams, and the editor here at Stylus's currently remote U.S. office. Today, we'll be speaking to Nancy Zhang, head of partnerships with BorderX Lab, a platform that allows global brands to sell directly to Chinese shoppers without the need for an external agency or China-based team. Also here with us is Saizangeeth Daswani, Stylus's very own head of advisory for fashion, beauty, and APAC. Welcome to you both. Our topic of the day is China. We'll be discussing how to tap into the country's luxury and retail markets and what content is resonating with today's Chinese millennials. And of course, we'll examine how these opportunities are changing as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. So Nancy, can you start by telling us a little bit about BorderX Lab? How do you work with brands and how do you help them cater their offering to the Chinese market? Sure, sure. So BorderX Lab is a mobile app and we have an app that actually takes three, I would say the three pillars of, of customer kind of engagement that we have. So one, content is key. So we have a content platform that uses our um, in-house editors who work with brands and our retailers to create content that tells stories and kind of shows the um, brand heritage, uh, shall we say, of American and European um, merchants. And we also have in-house um, content labs. So we actually have a beauty lab that we do swatching and we do reviews um, and Really, the reviews actually is a great way for us to engage our consumers because our consumers on our app are quite um, um, happy to share their responses. They like to take photos of their products. They like to um, talk about what products work and doesn't work for them. So we have this user-generated content, um, which kind of engages our community. So we have this content in this community. And then we really have the commerce that fuels um, the brand kind of conversion. So with all this chatter about a specific product, product or a specific line, we give the consumer the ability to actually very easily click to buy. So we look like this very glossy um, content platform on the on the outside, but really on the inside, we have this deep kind of um, technology that um, is able to serve very strong content that works with the consumer's uh, preferences, their uh, browsing history, and also we look at the uh, region that the, the consumer is from, and also we have actually quite a nice uh, balance of male and female users on our app and one third of our uh, male user one third of our users on our app are male and we have quite a lot of sports and um, streetwear sneakers related content uh, for them and so it's actually quite interesting that we're able to engage both the millennial male and females and so can you give us an example of a brand that's seen success on border x what have they been doing what do they look like from a fashion perspective, Alexander Wang has been um, on our platform for for quite a few years now. And one of the my favorite ways to talk about how Alexander Wang works with us is that um, we really look at this as an omni-channel kind of multi-channel strategy. So Alexander Wang has retail stores, his own, and also he has uh, wholesale accounts with all of the department stores in Asia. Plus he has um, his um, own e-commerce in China, and he also has his other channels, like for example, Tmall, and he also works with us. So in this kind of multi-pronged strategy, what we bring to the table really is the mobile engagement um, uh, the mobile engagement part, um, where we're really uh, able to reach millennials in the way or in the channel that they want to be reached, and that is by by far in China through a mobile device and not necessarily through a desktop. Um, and the other is that 
we partner with them on content and that content gets distributed across our 15 million users. And we do have quite a high concentration in first tier cities, but we also have a very strong concentration in second um, tier cities as well and third tier cities. So we're able to service, for example, customers who don't necessarily have the opportunity to walk into an Alexander Wang store here in New York um, or in Beijing or Shanghai. And can you quickly explain to our listeners what the different tier cities mean in China? Sure, sure. Yeah, so it, when we look at cities in China, I mean, any small city in China has 10, 20 million people in it. So the, there's this component of first tier cities is really the um, major travel hubs like Shanghai, Beijing, um, where there are a huge concentration of people um, and also a huge concentration of brand investment. So there's flagship stores, there's um, retail uh, stores, there's uh, very high-end malls, and there's basically the consumer has their choice, pick of the gamut and, and what they like to buy. And the availability of American products or European products is actually quite quite strong. So it's not necessarily because they can't get that product they're looking for that they're coming onto our app um, in the tier one city. But that is true sometimes in the tier two and or tier three city where China is just so expansive that for a lot of brands, it would be cost prohibitive to open stores all across China. And so we're actually quite strong in servicing tier two and tier three cities because those are places where our consumers, what we say is our consumers are looking for cross-border uh, American and European lifestyle. So they're looking for stuff that they can't necessarily find. Even if it is an American brand, they can't necessarily find it in the flagship in China because a lot of times product is um, product is, is designed to be uh, specialized for that specific market. And sometimes our customers want that American product or they want that limited edition product. I'll give you a good example. is um, Alexander Wang in the US on his e-commerce had a kind of... Um, um, marijuana related collaboration that, that they did not uh, produce or send to China because of certain sensitivities but actually there was quite a lot of interest and demand in some of that um, some of that kind of look so we were able to service the customers that are looking for those kind of limited edition drops um, directly here through the U.S. site of Alexander Wang. And so obviously brands like Alexander Wang and as you mentioned earlier, Pat McGrath are quite luxury brands and companies. So what do you think the opportunity for luxury is for among China markets at the moment? Oh, absolutely. So uh, when we look at kind of the distribution of customers kind of globally, right? Right now we say that China or global Chinese, so we're talking about not just people who live in China, we serve what we call the global Chinese. So that also means Chinese Americans that live here in the U.S., um, Chinese Canadians, Chinese who live uh, abroad in Europe and uh, Middle East as well. Um, so when we look at the global Chinese kind of distribution, you know, we look at probably 30 to 40% of the uh, luxury customer base is global Chinese. Some of it is travel retail. Um, but if you look at kind of future growth, right, 80% of future growth comes from China. So we're quite saturated, especially when it comes to e-commerce. We're quite saturated from an e-commerce perspective in luxury here in the U.S. Europe is still a little underpenetrated. I think we can do better in Europe, but China really is the next big market, right? Not just the two billion people, but also highly, highly engaged uh, millennials who have 
three times more um, screen time than I would say an American millennial. And they have that lifestyle component where they're the first generation that hasn't been through famine or uh, revolution. So their comfort level for spending and their comfort level for kind of um, conspicuous consumption is quite high. So, you know, even in, even in this, you know, I think we're going to transition into COVID response, you know, we saw in January, um, when China started shutting down, we saw that there was a very high spike in engagement, not necessarily in purchase, but in engagement. Because it, you, you can imagine everybody's bored, they're at home, they're playing on their phones, right? So there's this hunger for um, engagement, hunger for content that's authentic. Um, and we saw this kind of spike in engagement. And we also saw um, beauty continue to steadily um, sell. So we're seeing, okay, people aren't really going out, so they're not buying shoes or bags. Uh, but, you know, beauty is still going strong because there's a self-care component. We also saw a huge, saw a huge increase in wellness, um, in uh, supplements and self-care. Um, and then as we kind of went into March and as kind of the rest of the world started going into shutdown and quarantine, China was two months ahead. So now the Chinese consumer has rebounded in this kind of phenomenon that we call revenge buying. And really what it was is revenge buying kind of refers to um, this pent-up demand for Western product when China was used to be closed off. So this is not a new term that we just invented. Um, this is something that Chinese um, have had this history of, of, of this hunger for product that they have been closed off to, right? So this kind of revenge buying 2.0 we see is that this hunger for consumption um, that, that they hadn't had in two or three months, now that China is kind of back to normal, we always say our, our Shanghai office has never been happier to be stuck in traffic because it means things are back to normal. Normal. Um, so now that there's, you know, people are going out again, people are eating out again. We saw a huge uh, spike in revenge buying, and luxury actually took a nice big chunk of that. And we're seeing that investment in kind of uh, products that maybe they treat themselves for um, going through something that was difficult, and now they're able to come back and really to to go come back into this market and and get something really lovely to to kind of jumpstart the the new the new normal, if you will. <laughs> Yeah, that's really interesting. I feel like we've been hearing a lot about revenge buying here in the US and in the UK, and it's very much been focused, you know, and this is something that's happening in China, Chinese consumers are doing and that other brands should be looking forward to to really tap these consumers. And I'm curious if you both think that this is something that could translate to other markets as well. Like, will we see people coming out of lockdown in Europe and the US doing this? Or is the concept of re revenge buying really rooted in, as you're mentioning, the hunger for products? cannot be purchased in a specific location. Yeah, absolutely. I think, well, Nancy's talked a little bit about the revenge buying 2.0. Um, and it's interesting because we've already started to see some sort of inklings of revenge buying. You know, when the Hermes store in Guangzhou opened, um, they sold, I think there was record-breaking sales of like 2.7 million yes. in one day. <laughs> yes. But I do think that, you know, the experience of it, you know, they did do a lot to ensure that, you know, people who were in the store that day had amazing influences um, on Little Red Book, um, which is a, a platform, a social um, platform in China. We saw a lot of people kind of capture, you know, different stories and share what was going on um, within the store. They also then kind of had rare bags from all over shipped to that location so that people could buy sort of these one-of-a-kind bags. Um, equally, we saw, we've seen people, you know, line up outside of Chanel. And I think that China and, and different countries in APAC also have sort of had slightly a longer time to um, 
you know, adjust to the impact of coronavirus. And I think these countries have really sort of learned from the hard lessons of SARS because that was so prominent in Asia, um, you know, um, almost a decade ago. And I think when when a lot of retailers and brands look to SARS, you know, they feel like, oh, well, the um, you know the recovery period or the, will the recovery look the same? Um, and I think that looking at SARS might not necessarily give you an entire picture. You know, you can take inspiration from that for sure. But you know, leading into the lockdown and sort of coronavirus in general, we we saw that you know the world sort of economic backdrop was really different. We even started to see some reverse globalization. So. I think we need to think about how the mindsets are really changing as a result of this sort of longer period of dealing with this pandemic. So that psychological impact is really going to start to constrain some consumers, um, you know, compared to when we previously seen and also maybe constrain them for a little bit longer. Research actually shows that the recovery period or to actually see consumers shop like they were or in similar stances like they were before the virus, it would take about six to six months or more. Um, but that's not to say that, you know, I think, I think one thing about Chinese consumers is they were already really big avid spenders compared to um, consumers across the globe. So I kind of think that they're almost heightened a little bit compared to the way, the way global consumers are shopping. But I do think that priorities are really going to change. You know, um, millennials especially have, are probably giving more attention to the importance of saving. With these restricted budgets, we'll start to see consumers really want their products to work much harder um, and also across different disciplines as well. So, you know, in apparel, it could be um, uh, apparel with a high levels of functionality or reversible um, uh, apparel items or in the home we see um, a lot of these like compact home products that could work on the go but equally in the home as well you know so it's really thinking about those propositions and the properties of products and how these could essentially connect with um, consumers perception of value Yes, and when we look at the data of what consumers are looking for on our app, what we found is that post-COVID, even now, and it's translated to after the quarantine, spending on wellness and on kind of active wear, which kind of relates to um, working on one's body and you know soul, body and soul, right? So wellness um, has really increased and then stayed there. So um, we did see a slight drop in apparel um, and handbags, you know, during quarantine and beauty kind of stayed its course. Once um, China kind of came out of that quarantine, beauty spiked, um, mm -hmm. apparel and footwear kind of started to come back up again, but really wellness stayed really high. Um, yeah. And the other one for us is home, home products, right? We haven't really focused a lot on home products on our app because it is kind of difficult to ship kind of large products or technology um, that have uh, wiring is cha challenging between um, the two different electrical cords that need to go back and forth between APAC and, and Western Europe. Um, but we do see a lot more interest in it because I think all of us realize as we're in quarantine that investment in the comfort of your home um, has made a big impact on kind of your life quality. And I think that those trends are not going to go away post-COVID. So what we're, what we're seeing or what we're looking for are these new direct-to-consumer brands, like you said, um, that really has this like high functionality and value. Um, what we do think, uh, what, what we're going to go into this kind of Q2 is pricing, right? I really, yeah. really am very interested in seeing pricing because I think that um, I would caution brands and retailers to um, 
think about their pricing strategy. There's, it's a double-edged sword. If you're, uh, if you're kind of sitting on a lot of inventory and you need to kind of convert um, to cash so that you can kind of move on with the season, um, it's totally understandable. But at the same time, um, if you price too low and uh, you go into, we kind of go into this liquidation phase, uh, we don't want to train the consumer into feeling that once they get this deal, they're con can continue to be deal hungry for the rest of the, the season. Um, so in order to really get out of this deal hunger, we have to have really, really compelling full price products launch in the fall. Things that consumers are going to want to buy full price, that they're going to think is special and that they actually want to invest in going into the fall season. Yeah, I definitely agree with the fact that, you know, because consumers are thinking of value, it really does connect with that mindset of the fact that they want to invest in themselves and their surroundings. So that really speaks to your point around like wellness and home. Um, but also, you know, a lot of, um, you know, our clients are also asking us about things around pricing and what are interesting ways to kind of work around that. And I completely agree. And I think the fashion industry sort of moved beyond, you know, the phases of sort of big discounts. Mm -hmm. um, so what are some sort of small but, you know, smart sort of tactics you can really employ to ensure that when people are shopping online or on social commerce or on mobile, like how can they ensure that those baskets are being converted to sales, you know? So small discounts on like higher ticketed items. So like 10% off on like $150 or 20 or 15% off on like $250 or something like that, you know, promotions that really don't decrease the general, um, they don't greatly decrease that sort of um, average order value. I think that's um, key to sort of consider going forward. And so thinking about, you know, retaining loyalty, engaging customers, what kind of content are you, Nancy, finding resonates most with Chinese consumers at the moment? So two things Chinese consumers love. One is really an authentic voice, right? So they want to hear your authentic voice. Glossy advertising is not necessarily the thing that's going to move them anymore. Um, here in the U.S., we're seeing influencers are not necessarily so in touch with what consumers are looking for. Um, in China, we're seeing little less of that. I think the KOLs in China are doing a very good job of talking about how um, kind of being a little bit more in touch and talking about, you know, their experiences. Um, under under um, quarantine. So I think influencers are not going to go away, but I think the really authentic influencers are the ones that are catching the hearts of the people. Um, brand authenticity, I think, is really important. And the other one is content that's made directly for them. I mean, I think if you look about it, in a, any, any customer base wants to know that they're valued, right, as a customer. Um, so Chinese consumers really appreciate when in the right tone, um, brands are speaking to them in a way that they feel um, are understood and respected. I think it's really important that Chinese consumers feel that um, people in general all over the world um, know uh, what, what they want and are able to uh, deliver what they want without kind of pandering to a specific kind of stereotype of, of China or Chinese consumption. Yeah. You know, when the lockdown first happened, obviously it was just first in China, the rest of the world was still kind of operating as normal. I loved one of the things that Nike had done. Um, Nike did this um, WeChat mini program where they created these like um, little workout videos on how you can work out at home. 
um, with like water bottles and things like that, you know, so they're still kind of pushing their core message around fitness, performance and wellness and, and health. But, you know, they're really thinking about what that Chinese consumer is going through in that moment. And I think that's what a lot of Chinese consumers really crave to see from some of these global brands. And so looking forward to, you know, the rest of the year, hopefully we'll all be back in our offices soon. Um, But in terms of brands, do you think that there's any advice that you'd give on re-strategizing their retail program for the rest of the year? Should they bank on China versus the rest of the world? You know, what's your outlook here? I would say China is two to three months ahead of the rest of the world at this point. So absolutely, we're banking on China. China has been doing very, very well cross-border. Um, and so we're having very, very, we're having a very good uh, Q1, Q2. We had a very good Q1, Q2 is coming up and it's doing very, very well as well. So absolutely, I would say bank on China, bank on cross-border, um, bank on mobile technology, um, bank on e-commerce, and really bank on, I think the most important thing is bank on having an authentic direct connection with the consumer. I think that that's really shown um, to be a huge plus in this time that consumers do want to have engagement um, because at a time when there is very little stimulus, right? Um, people are craved for stimulus, but there's so much being kind of thrown and cutting through that noise, I think is going to be really key. Um, the other thing that I really want to kind of bring up or mention is that we may see a second uh, wave, right? So I think it's behooves us all to think about what a retail strategy would look like for Christmas, for Q4, for Black Friday, like Q4 is the most important quarter for for, yeah. for for clothing retailers, for for any kind of selling consumption. What would Q4 look like if there was a second wave, right? Um, prepare, I think, um, hope for the best and prepare for the worst. So I think if there was a second wave, right, this kind of hunkering down during holiday season, how can you cut through the noise and how can we engage consumers during the holiday season? Um, I think that strategy is key. And a, a big part of that, I truly believe... Um, is mobile. mobile. Yeah. I mean, how much time people spend on mobile versus desktop um, in the US is still kind of shifting. Um, but in the rest of the world, particularly in China, um, mobile is the only way that we, you can cut across. I mean, we don't even collect email anymore. I know that um, we've talked about this uh, before. Email is still one of the highest conversion, if not the highest conversion channel for a lot of American brands. Um, but email is just a completely irrelevant um, uh, part of the consumer journey um, in, in, in the APAC region because everybody uses their phones um, for transaction. So I I really do think that um, kind of shifting gears into direct to consumer and into brand uh, brands engaging their consumers on a mobile device is going to be key in key in Q4. Yeah, in China and actually with a lot of developing um, countries, you know, the they sort of skip having like desktops and laptops, and their access to the internet just goes straight from mobile. Um, and I think that's why, like, that really speaks to that tier two, tier three, and even tier four city consumers where that emerging middle class is really, really growing. Um, but bringing back, you know, something you said, Nancy, earlier, um, that point around, like, having a multi-pronged approach is so important because, yes, mobile is definitely a key sort of area that we're already starting to see people, you know, shift their budgets towards because mobile kind of, it's, it's sort of entering your personal space. You know, the mobile is like an, an extension of your hand, yes. but also then thinking beyond just, you know, 
driving traffic in your store because clearly that's not even going to be a possibility anymore. You know, what can you do on e-commerce? Are you doing anything on social? How easy is it for people to buy on social? What are you doing on mobile? You know, it's just like, I feel like there's been so much work for consumers, Mm -hmm. but I think brands now need to take that ownership and really think about how they can, um, you know, think from a consumer first perspective. I think that's a sort of good way to really think about it. Sure. And I want to just touch up on one more thing, which I think is live stream. I think we've seen um, here in the US at least that this comfort of switching, everybody almost immediately overnight switched to doing yoga live stream, Pilates live stream, all our meetings are on Zoom now, right? So this kind of receptiveness towards live stream, I think um, COVID has really pushed brands um, in the wellness space to convert right away into a live stream environment. And I think that um, brands, retail brands, uh, fashion brands, brands can do the same. I think, you know, if we do need to really think about a Q4 strategy, I do think that live stream and video content is going to be key for that. Excellent. Well, from my little box to yours, I'd like to <laughs> thank my guests, Nancy Zhang and Saizengeek Daswani, and thank everyone for listening. I hope you'll join us next time for more Future Thinking from Stylus. You've been listening to Future Thinking from Stylus the show where our analysts, alongside industry thought leaders, unpack the big trends you need to know about. Find out more about what the future holds for your business at stylus.com. And if you like what you heard today, make sure you subscribe to Future Thinking in iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts to hear new episodes as soon as they're available.